Thank you, John. I'm going to slip on my jacket for a while. I'm cold for some reason. Uh, it's good to be here with you all. Uh, I'm grateful to Damon for recording this, and some friends of mine will be grateful too, who have been asking me. My name is Keith Rollison. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've recovered from a hopeless state of mind, and I'm recovering from alcoholism. My sobriety date is December 24, 1999. My home group currently is the Cartersville Study Group in Cartersville, Georgia at the Sir Club. It's a study group, and we try to do old AA like they did in the 1940s. So come visit us at 7.30 on Tuesdays. Uh, we're going through the big book page by page, sentence by sentence right now. I, uh, for those of you doing the math, I'm five weeks shy of 17 years. I like to start my story on December 23rd, 1999. I came out of a blackout. And I was talking to my manager. And I had been calling her every day for a week because my project lead had said, Keith, I can't let you keep calling me anymore because there's something wrong or something to that effect. That's because I was drinking so much I couldn't make it into the office. And so I concocted a story that I had the stomach flu, thinking that, probably like we all do, I'll get this under control this time and I'll be able to go back in. But by that time in my alcoholism, I was trapped at home, drinking chronically all the time. I wasn't even blacking out anymore. I was drinking to pass out. And I'd sleep about five hours and wake up and start drinking again. I couldn't make it to the office I had tried for three weeks prior to that to go Christmas shopping so that I could wrap presents and mail them to Colorado. And I was incapable of leaving the house except maybe to buy a few groceries and to go to the closest liquor store. And I would have to wait for a window where I was only about a .25 to do that because most of the time I knew I was too drunk to drive. And for me, .25 was manageable. So here it is, December 23rd. It's almost Christmas. I'm trapped in my house, dying of alcoholism. And I come out of this blackout. And I start to cry because I realize I don't know how long I've been talking to Katie. And I don't know what I've said. And I knew it was over. I knew, not so much that I've been busted, but that this hell had culminated. It was so out of control that I couldn't hide anything from anybody anymore. It turns out my project lead, Howard, was on the phone also. They were conference called with me. And I found out later, to my great embarrassment and humiliation, that they had begun to add other people. I was in a small technical team for IBM, and they had added on about five other guys from my small technical team. So they were all listening to this drama, I said, if you send the police, I'll kill myself. They thought I had a gun. I did not have a gun. They assumed I had a gun. They finally 
got me to say that uh, there was a man that I used to go partying with who was in another group in the technical league at where we worked, and I agreed that he could come and get me and take me to the hospital. I didn't go to the hospital in order to get sober. I went to the hospital in order to beat the system, because that's what I do. All my life I've been beating authority. School, do as little as possible and get a B or an A. Parents, authorities, police, any authority figures, I, w I was very good at beating the system, and that's why I was nearly 50 years old, and I still hadn't made it to AA. I didn't go out drinking. Let me, let me take that back. I'd go out drinking, but I would leave before the roadblocks came up in, in uh, Forsyth County when I lived in Cumming. And so I, I managed to get to this advanced state of physical addiction as well as moral addiction, spiritual addiction, and emotional addiction. Alcohol was my lover. She'd been very good to me for decades. I had resigned myself to the fact that I was an alcoholic when I was 18. I took the alcohol alcoholic test, I think in Reader's Digest, and I passed. And I, had, I hadn't even lost a job yet or been divorced yet or had a car accident. And I still passed the alcoholic test. And so I thought, okay, it is what it is. But I was having no consequences, and so what's the big deal? Because I drank for effect. I drank for relief, and it worked very well. I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I had dis-ease. I had the dis-ease of alcoholism. And so I went to the hospital... December 23rd, 1999, to beat the system, to save my job. I had intended to die an alcoholic. I, I, in my grandiosity, and I'm not making this up, for months prior to this day, I had decided that I was going to die of a diabetic coma because I'd become a diabetic from the alcoholism. I had so many carbohydrates in me all the time that I'd been put on medicine. And the medicine made me sick, so, you know, when you have diabetes and you're, you're, you're a type 2 diabetic and, and you're put on medicine, there's only one thing you can do when you're an alcoholic, and that's give up the medicine. This is making me throw up. And so I was going to die of diabetic coma or from a stroke or from a massive heart attack. In my grandiosity, I was going to die that way. My friend comes to my house. I get my little travel kit ready. I'm probably, well, as it turns out, I was 0.41 when they took my blood at the hospital. I was able to get my little travel kit together and wait for Rex to arrive. He drove me all the way down to Northside Hospital inside the perimeter in Atlanta. They had a... Uh, course, emergency room and, and also a, another type of facility I was to find out later. And I had my tumbler of Spritini, Sprite and vodka, about probably half and half. And he said, yeah, you can take your drink with you because it's a 45-minute drive. I remember getting out, 0 0.41, 0 0.42. I remember getting out. I was in and out of consciousness, but I remember getting out 
and carrying into the emergency room my glass tumbler of vodka and Sprite on ice. And I can remember distinctly the nurse running over, because they knew I was coming. IBM had called ahead. And I remember her taking the glass from me, and I knew I didn't want to be strapped down. I was terrified of, you know, forced withdrawal. So I cooperated. I knew the jig was up. And I remember to being taken past all the other people in the emergency room. And in my grandiosity, I thought, <laughs> you know, I'm getting preferential treatment here. I thought this was pretty impressive. I'm so sick that I go past the others. And they stabilized me for seven hours. They couldn't give me anything like a sedative because they were afraid they would kill me. But I had no potassium in my body, and I was probably 24 to 36 hours from death, I found out later. My sobriety date is December 24th because at that point I had gone 24 hours without alcohol. And the night of December 23rd, I agreed to commit myself to Northside Hospital. Now, when they do that, they don't put you in an alcoholic ward. They put you in something called a behavioral ward. Well, I didn't understand that till I was in it. There were no door, door handles. They were magnetic doors. And I was put in with schizophrenics and junkies and people who slept all the time and people who never slept and psychotics. And I was not pleased because I wanted to be in the alcoholic ward. And it hurt my feelings to be put in with these nuts. What I found out later is that the behavioral ward is where they put people It's where they put people who can't manage their own life. And they give you food, and they give you pills so you don't die. And it took them two days to stabilize me. I had my own room, and I was impressed with that. I didn't have a roommate like most of the other people. And it was only much later that I realized the reason was that I had the special hospital bed with the rails that would go up so that they could strap me down later if I went crazy. That's why I was in my own room. So on day three, I began to go to meetings. They weren't really AA meetings, but they were group meetings. And I began to mix with the population. The first two days, I ate in my room, had the sweats, soaked pillows, soaked pillows. I soaked pillows for two weeks. Sweats, they called them. Night sweats. You sleep and you sweat. You're sweating out the poison. And by day four, I was beginning to get some sanity, and I realized what was going on. I had met God in 1970 at the age of, we'll say 21, almost 21. And that was a miracle. I was an alcoholic since I was probably 14. I was probably born an alcoholic. By that I mean I had the characteristics of an alcoholic. I had low self-esteem. I blew things out of proportion. I was overly sensitive. I was trapped in my own head. I was ill at ease. I had grandiosity that I was better than other people and at the same time had low self-esteem. And on we can go with the list. And so when I found alcohol at the age of 14, that was a solution, not a problem. 
See, because I already had alcoholism. Alcohol gave me relief from the alcoholism. And that's why Dr. Silkworth writes in the doctor's opinion that we're ill at ease until we can again experience the relief that only a drink can bring. So that's why I was okay at age 18 when I self-diagnosed myself as an alcoholic. Now, I was a phase one alcoholic. I didn't drink all the time. But when I drank, I drank alcoholically. So on day four, which is about December 26, and I won't even go on to go into how my family couldn't find me. My family in Colorado didn't know where I was. I disappeared December 24th. They were calling the house and nobody was answering. I won't go into what my brother had to go through because of the new laws about not divulging who's in the hospital. What my brother had to go through to find me, calling hospitals randomly in Atlanta. They didn't know if I was alive or dead. I just disappeared off the face of the earth. And on December 26, I'd been put in touch with my brother and my parents, and I realized that I had just missed a bullet and that somehow God was involved in my life. I'd met God at age 21 through a miracle. Even though I was an alcoholic, I was using drugs heavily. If any of you have a drug problem, I'll be glad to talk to you after the meeting. I'm here to talk about alcoholism, but I can tell you I have extensive experience uh, with acid, shooting amphetamines, narcotics. I've done almost everything back in the 60s when you could get almost anything. But alcohol is what got me here. On December 27th at 4 a.m., 1999, I knew I was going to be released. I'd been in the hospital four nights and five days, and they had physically detoxed me. The people in that room were allowed to go up on the roof to have cigarettes, and I wouldn't even do that because finally I was safe. I was safe in that behavioral ward. I hadn't seen sunlight. I didn't care that the doors had magnets. I was safe. And I was going to be let out in about 12 hours, and I was terrified because I, I knew I was going to drink again because that's what we do. At 4 a.m., I couldn't sleep, and I surrendered to God again, just like I had in 1970. He'd given me the victory over drugs. I used drugs later when I was drinking heavily, but... I could take or leave drugs. I couldn't take or leave alcohol. It was my mistress. And I surrendered to God after a rebellion of 14 and a half years. I had left God when my wife sued me for divorce after I was sober for a year and a half and I was going to AA in Denver at that time. That would be about 1985. And I shook my fist at God. And I tell you this in case any of you can relate to it. And I said, I've been a good dad, and I've been the best husband I can be, and I have two kids, and this is what I get. All I've ever wanted is to belong to somebody. All I've ever wanted was a home. And I declared war on God. And I went to a bar in my self-pity, and I drank, and uh, off, I was, off, I, off I went. For 14 and a half years... So I went through phase two, phase three, and phase four in those uh, incredible years with corporate relocations, 
grandiosity. I'm getting corporate realos. I'm getting pay raises. I'm getting promotions. As a full-blown alcoholic, I was doing as well as these bozos who were straight. And, and that was the kind of alcoholic, condescending, sarcastic, better-than, self-righteous person I'd become. I had great relief after I prayed December 27 at 4 a.m. A peace came over me and I fell asleep. Later that day, they finally checked me out. You know how it is to get checked out of a hospital. It takes forever to do the paperwork. And they came and they interviewed me. Do you want to kill yourself? No. Do you want to kill somebody else? I'm looking, do, do people really answer you? Yes. They said, yeah, they do. And they let me go. And Rex took me home, and um, they told me two things at the hospital, and I only did one of them. They said, get into a halfway house, and they said, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I wasn't going to go to a halfway house because I already had a mortgage I was paying on. I wasn't going to pay another $650 a month to stay with people who didn't, didn't even want to be sober. At this point, I wanted to be sober, but I didn't know how. And I discovered later that the reason the doctors and the nurses said go to Alcoholics Anonymous is that's what they tell people that they don't know what to do with. Nurses and doctors don't know what to do with us. And so they say, go be with your own kind. They know how to help you. And so my friend was taking all the liquor and beer out of my refrigerator and the cabinets while I was on the phone trying to find a meeting, finally through the Halt Club in Gainesville, Georgia, I found a meeting in Cumming, Georgia. And I went there, and I was crazy, that crazy. And they accepted me. It was a fairly big meeting. I shared three times because I thought it was group therapy. I didn't know how AA worked. I'd gone to AA some in Denver, but I'd forgotten about all that. There'd be pauses, so nobody else was talking, so I'd talk. Annoyed the hell out of them. <laughs> I was crazy. The women were afraid of me. I would stare at people. I probably was glaring at people, didn't know it. I was detoxing for months. I had night sweats for weeks. But I kept coming back. I went to a meeting every night after work. And on the nights that uh, I could, I'd go to NA also. And after about three months, I got a sponsor. After a month, I, I, I began to put together uh, all the meetings in the county were posted up on scraps of paper on the bulletin board. And I thought, this is very inefficient and very rude and very, you know, because I. It was very unhelpful to me. So I took all those pieces of paper and I created a spreadsheet. Because I'm a computer tech. And I published a spreadsheet. And then people would say, well, you don't have that meeting on there. So I'd add it and I'd republish it. And I became the county meeting publisher. And that was my first service work outside of making coffee and sweeping the floor and mopping the floor at the church. And at three months sober, I got a real sponsor. My first sponsor I got was an old man who was very nice, and I knew he wouldn't do anything with me. That way I could tell people I had a sponsor. At three months sober, I realized I'm going to drink again. And so I got a real sponsor. I had 
three months. He had 15 years. And I didn't even know his name. His, his face kept appearing to me. This is the truth. I only saw him on Sunday morning meetings at another place because we couldn't use the church on Sundays. And I walked up to him. Some of you may know Rick Murphy. He's known all over Atlanta. And he agreed to be my sponsor. He was going through a divorce, as it turns out. And I was crazy. And he said, good, you can help keep me sober. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? This guy doesn't understand. I need help. (laughs) I don't need to be helping him. And so we were off, and he began to take me through the steps, and I began to get sane. And I'm going to grab my phone here so I know how I'm doing. And I'm doing on clock time. I don't see a clock in here. Okay, I got sober pretty fast, didn't I? I don't tell war stories. I learned in AA not to play top this. You guys can always top my stories. I'm just a garden variety alcoholic. I say that with pride now, but it took me five years of sobriety to say, I'm one of you. I was better than and I was different than you for five years in sobriety. And I say that not only so you know how sick I was, but so that some of you are probably keeping that secret too. And So don't be alone. I finally got to the place that I realized what we have in common and that I really wasn't any better or any different than any other alcoholic. You drank differently. You experienced different things. Maybe your pain even felt different. Your childhood was different. Your parents were different. But what we have in common is that alcoholism wants to consume us. And I drank alcohol until alcohol drank me. So maybe I feel led to talk about the steps now because that's what saved my life. I talk about sponsorship and I talk about the steps. The purpose of the fellowship is to get the information and to get some fellowship. The meetings will not keep me sober, but they do put me around people who are sane and sober, and they put me around good information, good orderly direction, that if I take it, I have a chance to live a new life. Step one, I had an advantage over a lot of you. I already had a higher power. I already had a personal higher power that I could talk to and who responded that I had known from 1970, which was, what, 29 years earlier. At one time, I'd been in a ministry. See, when I was married and when I was a phase two alcoholic and going to church and all that stuff, I was a binge drinker because I was poor and because I felt shame. I couldn't understand how I could be somebody who walked with God and still want to drink, but I did. And it was loathing. And the only time I ever got relief from that was when I finally surrendered to the alcohol in 1985, 15 years after I met God, and said, okay, you've got me. And so I was able to return to God and work the steps and get reunited with God. So step one, I had an advantage over you because I was already six months ahead of some of you. I already had a higher power. Step two, I like step two. If, if Bill Wilson had written the steps for normal people, there would be 11 steps. You wouldn't need step two, because as a result of understanding that you're powerless over something and your life is unmanageable, it would just be common sense that you would surrender your will and your life to a higher power. But the alcoholic is devious. The alcoholic is deceitful. 
the alcoholic wants to beat the system. And so he puts in step two that says, if you're willing, you could be restored to sanity. And when I accomplish that, then I get to go to step three and actually surrender my will and my actions to God as I understand him. So I stayed on step three for a long time because I was, like I said, batty, and I'm trying not to curse in this meeting. I was a very sick person. And I slowly got sanity. It took me 13 months just to detox. You know the rewiring in your brain? I'm not talking about the, the body detox. I'm talking about the brain rewiring. My sponsor said it takes about 11 months, and it took me, I'm saying, 13 months. Every three months, I'd say, oh, I've been in a cloud. And three months later, I'd say, oh, wow, I've still been in a fog. So at 16 months sober, third step was no longer enough. I was restless. I was unhappy. I was getting whatever critical spirit. My sponsor said, you need to do step four. He was smart. He knew. He knew not to push me too hard. I guess he knew what a rebel I was. And so I did a written step four. And then we prayed and I did a, a step five with him. And I cleaned up the wreckage of the past. And I can tell you it's at that point that I felt like I was a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in AA when I did step five. Before that I had been around AA and I'd been hanging out with AA. But when I did step five, something changed. Then I did step six. You all know what step four and five is? Step four is a written inventory, and step five is you read it to yourself, to somebody else, and to God. And that confession actually works, and I don't know why it works, and I don't need to know why it works, but it's cleansing. My first sponsor said, you're as sick as your secrets. And one thing that doing step five does is get all the poison out. It's like draining a wound that's been infected so that it can heal properly. You're as sick as your secrets. I may come back to that. There's something I wanted to say. Anyway, step six is have I left anything out? And for me, step six is a deeper level of step two. Step two said, said there is a God and he could restore you to sanity. Are you open to it? Are you game to go forward? Step six says, you could have your character defects removed and worked on. Are you willing to do it? And I said, yes, finally. Because I, I was a literalist. And I took step six and seven wrong. It had all these emphatic all and forever and I don't have the steps in front of me, but I could read some examples. And I was stuck on step six and seven for about three months. And my sponsor, I wish he'd tried to break through to me, but eventually the 12 and 12 helped me understand that I set my character defects off to the side. I may have been set free from one or two character defects, but I would say most of my character defects are set off to the side out of my peripheral vision. And if I walk with God, they seem to be gone, but that I can always turn and take them right back. 
And that's how I understand them currently. And until I die, for me, I have an alcoholic body. If I ingest alcohol, I'll be off to the races again. I've been set free from a hopeless state of mind, and I'm being set free from alcoholism. And when I die, I'll get a new body, in my understanding, and I'll be totally set free from alcoholism and have unbroken fellowship with God. Right now it's broken by my ego and my cravings and my appetites and my self-will. And so I started step seven, and to me step seven is a deeper level of step three because I'm really saying to God, you own me. I want to walk with you. I don't need to run my own life anymore. And I get good orderly direction from AA, from the literature, from my church, from uh, things I read in a magazine that just come to me in a divine providential way. I, I get wisdom and goodness coming to me in a hundred different ways. Step eight is I made a list using the four-step list. I made a list of those to do and amend with in some fashion, if possible, not always possible. Step nine, my sponsor made it clear to me, because by that time I was two years sober and he was 17 years sober. He said, you don't do any amend without checking in with me first. I had a sponsor who, who supervised me. I don't know what kind of sponsor you had, but I was 52 years old, owned six houses, worked for two major corporations, made a hell of a lot of money, and I needed supervision. I had the emotional maturity of a 16-year-old by that time, maybe 17-year-old. But when I came into AA, I probably had the maturity of a 14-year-old. And I believed him. He said, check in with me before you do any amend. And the first ones I did were financial amends because I had done some vicious vandalism that I will not go into here. We don't have time. I have enough for two stories. And that gave me some relief from some vicious stuff I had done, drunk, in my teen years. And I still continue that amend. I still give money to certain people, strangers usually, to try and make up for the harm that I did to strangers. My first major amend was to my dad. I flew out to Arizona where he had retired. And my sponsor said, you'll know when the time is. Don't force it. You'll know when the window's open. I was with him for two days, and I guess the morning of the third day, and I think I was going to go back home after on the fourth day, we were sitting together in his office looking at his library, and we're sitting together, and the voice said, it's time. And I trusted the voice, and I trusted the process, and I trusted AA. And my, my sponsor taught me, be, don't be specific, because if you start telling them things about what you did, they're going to start remembering all the things you didn't tell them. Just be vague and be general. And I said, Dad, I'm sorry I couldn't be the son that I could have been. That's what I was coached to say. And I don't even know, I don't even think I talked about alcoholism, because he couldn't accept my alcoholism. He took it personally. If his son was an alcoholic, it reflected on him. And he was in denial. So no, I, I know I didn't mention alcoholism. But I made a nice step in man, and he, he loved me back. And he was a, a hard parent that I won't go into. I don't have time. 
But we had some reconciliation to a point, and I had relief. And I made a nine-step amend eventually to my grown-up son and daughter. And they're now in recovery, you see. And I don't think it always happens, but I can tell you that sometimes the way it works is that if you and I allow God into our life and break down those, those doors of darkness and evil and surrender to God, then we set the family free. We break the family curse. that passed on from generation to generation, this alcoholism thing. And both my kids came into recovery, and not because of me. But they saw that I was getting well. And through other people, at different times, they both got clean and sober. My son didn't even come in through AA. The church was able to do it for him. He was a criminal and an ice addict and who knows what else. But he's doing fine now, and he's married with children seven years later. My daughter has been clean and sober for ten years. Step 10, step 1, 2, and 3 are the decision steps. Step 4 through 9, I was taught, are the action steps. Step 10, 11, and 12 are the maintenance steps. The two aspects of step 10 are to do the nightly inventory, which I still to this day am not good at. But the other kind saved my butt from the first month. I started doing this other one before I even read step 10, and that is spot check inventory. Highly recommend it. Something's wrong, find out why. What's going on? What just happened? Somebody hurt my feelings. Somebody disappointed me. Somebody hurt me. And by identifying what's going on, I was able to remove the triggers. See, the craving was removed from me early in sobriety. I was shocked at how early the craving was removed. Probably the first week. But the triggers went on for years. And I had to learn to not drink when I felt low self-esteem. I had to learn to not drink and lash out when things weren't going my way. And I, I've only got that one white chip because I'm scared to death that if I go back, I will die. I, I have another relapse in me, but I don't have another recovery. Don't even suggest that I'll get back here because I won't. You'll have to kick in my door and find me dead on my living room floor. And I'll probably live two weeks if I drink again because I'm an advanced alcoholic. Spot check inventory is very helpful. Step 11, I began to have a relationship with my higher power that's more developed and more advanced. And as a result of these steps, I get to do step 12. And, and that's two parts. One is I get to take this message to other people, like I'm doing tonight, and doing service work um, of all sorts. There's 100 different ways you can serve in AA and in your community. And the second part of uh, step 12 is to practice these principles in all my affairs. That means in the restaurant. That means in the highway. That means at work. That means at home with my family, most of all. And I'm still working on that one. So it looks like we're coming up on uh, seven minutes till. So I'm going to wrap this up with uh, God is good. There is a God. And he does care, and he will help anyone who will just cry out. And he's a God of second chances. He's a God of patience, forgiveness, healing, love, light, beauty, 
All goodness resides in my higher power that I call God. And among the top are patience. Patience, patience, patience. He, he forgives. He, he says, let's move on. I can start my day over any time of any day. And so that's what we do. We try to walk in the light and to not live like crazy, dry alcoholics any longer. That's what I've got. Uh, Thank you for listening to me, and uh, I'm done.